who do we get to see? And therefore, like, who do we get to believe in? Not only to like understand people better, but I think to understand for younger kids, especially like how they get to travel through the world and what their potentials could be. It's, it's a lot harder to imagine yourself being something if you've never seen anyone that looks like you doing it. And we internalize these images of who gets to be a surfer and who doesn't, or who gets to be a marathoner and who doesn't, or who gets to be, you know, a politician and who doesn't. So yeah, that's what I mean when I say representation. That's Faith E. Briggs. And this is the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Hey, what's up, everybody? I'm your host, Mario Fraioli, and my guest this week is Faith E. Briggs. Faith is a runner, documentary filmmaker, and advocate currently based in Portland, Oregon, and her work focuses on diversity and representation in the media and outdoors. Her latest film, called This Land, is a story about land access told through a journey of inclusion and empowerment, where she and a few other runners ran 150 miles through three U.S. national monuments and assess what is at stake if previously protected lands are reduced and if the public is largely unaware about it. I had been looking forward to this conversation for a while, and it does not disappoint. We talked about the mix of excitement and trepidation Faith is feeling midway through 2020, working through some of the confusion she's been experiencing of late, and why representation in the media is more important now than ever before. She also told me about the appeal of mountains, trails, and ultras to someone who ran the 400 meters in college, redefining what a conservationist is, her love of words, language, and storytelling, and a lot more. I'll leave it at that for now. I think you'll really dig this one. So here we go with Faith E. Briggs. All right, Faith E. Briggs, I have been looking forward to this conversation for a while, and I'm excited to welcome you to the Morning Shakeout podcast. Same, same. Thank you so much. I'm I'm very excited to be here. There's a lot of ground that I want to cover in this conversation, but as of today, July 1st, we are halfway through 2020. How are you feeling right now? (laughs) It's amazing how this year can feel so short and so long at the same time. Um, Definitely having a lot of feelings about everything that's happening in the world. Um, But I think um, also, you know, 2020, we have an election year here. And I think we've kind of forgot that in the midst of everything else. So I'm feeling uh, both a a mix of excitement and trepidation about about where we're at right now. Where's the excitement coming from? Um, gosh, honestly, like I, you know, we've had, I've been struggling to find the words of like what to call what's happening right now with this, um, newfound understanding or interest or visibility of the Black Lives Matter movement on a wider scale. My, you know, initial response to the killings of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery were the same tragedy and that I that I always feel. Um, and then seeing other people major I mean to be clear to see a large large number of white people respond was really confusing for me um 
And it's not like I didn't want them to. I just was confused. I was like, why now? You know, why not? I mean, we know so many names. We've learned so many names. Um, so my first response was really like skepticism and confusion. And it has transformed into um, excitement. Um, so I feel excited about, you know, so much of what I do in my life is about representation and inclusivity and like addressing the real history of um, our country and, and what our everyday context is. So it's it's pretty exciting to see people say, hey, this is important enough for us to talk about every day. Um, and so I feel excited about that. How did you work through some of that confusion that you were experiencing? <laughs> Um, I think definitely talking with friends, you know, and, um, I have an amazing community of people that do justice work, um, whether it's that they're DEI consultants or whether they, um, work in marketing, um, and are consultants for brands and things like that. And so, um, and I'm a part of different communities of, um, affinity groups, um, namely Brown Folks Fishing being one of them. And, um, there's another wonderful group of women in the outdoors, black women in the outdoors that I'm in contact with. And, and these are people that I kind of talk to every day online or otherwise. And so, um, seeing how those folks were feeling was definitely helpful because there was a, I felt okay, I'm not the only one out here feeling some kind of like chip on my shoulder about what are you doing here now? Um, and, you know, to, to, to transform it, I think there's some, some people in these same communities that were like, listen, I don't want to be asking the, the dumb question, but if we've wanted people to pay attention, they're paying attention now, shouldn't we be capitalizing on that energy and it was the question that needed to be asked, you know, to look at what is the big picture here. Um, and I think for me, you know, I've always kind of been okay with accepting flawed attempts. Um, and and what I mean by that is like sometimes the first or second or the third per time you try to do something new, it's not going to be perfect, but I'd rather see an effort. Um, and so I think for me, getting to the point where, whoa, we're seeing a huge effort here. And if you have some tools, um, because only because you've been doing this work, um, you know, in following the path of so many other people who have been doing this work, if you have some tools to share, just like tools were shared with you, then that should be the focus right now. It's interesting to hear you say that. I had Camila Jornet on this podcast a couple of weeks ago, and She's a black woman who has worked in the running and outdoor industries. And one of the things that we talked about was the movement that's going on right now and the momentum that's behind it. And I think that parallels what you were just talking about very nicely. And what I'm interested to get your perspective on is what do you think was the spark that made more white people care? and start noticing that a lot of these injustices were happening and then to actually take some steps to do something about it. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, there's a few answers to that one. Um, so I think, I think that, okay, I talk about different people differently. Um, George Floyd's killing was so slow. 
It was so slow. And that video, I think without a doubt, showed a choice being made. I think, you know, I wouldn't have said that in many of the other videos of, of watching Black people get killed by the police that a choice wasn't being made, but there were so, it was easier for people to be in denial when they saw things happening quickly. Mm-hmm. You know, gunshots going off and, and things like that. But this was such a slow and intentional um, with the cop looking out, you know, at the person knowing he's being filmed, you know. Um, so I think that really shook people to their core in a way where if denial had been the easy way out in the past, this one was really hard to deny. Um, also, I think that, you know, Ahmad Arbery being on a run um, really made a difference to people, you know, there are so many runners in the United States. You probably know the numbers. I don't know the numbers, <laughs> but there's so many people that um, go on runs or identify as a runner. Um, and so to finally see a community respond and say, hey, that's that's one of us um, was really interesting because, you know, they didn't, you know, like white America didn't respond like, hey, that kid was walking home from the bodega with some Skittles, I do that. It wasn't, oh, you know, he's just standing outside on the on the corner, like with a Lucy cigarette, like, oh, I do that. But there's something about Ahmad Arbery being in the process of running, I think that um, did make people feel connected. Um, and then, you know, with Breonna Taylor, like not only was she innocent in her home, but the people that they were looking for were already in, in custody. So these this one, two, three of um, really egregious um, actions by the cops, um, I think, you know, really affected people. And then um, the Amy Cooper, Christian Cooper. um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've talked to friends that, white women specifically, for whom that shook them the most, um, to see Amy Cooper, who's not related to Christian Cooper, call the cops and, and threaten and, and, you know, have it all recorded um, on this black man who had just asked her to put a leash on her dog. She had criminalized him and created him as a threat. I think that for a lot of white women, they could see themselves there and it was not what they wanted to see. So I think that the slight differences of, um, white people finally be able to see themselves in what was happening um, made a difference. And one of the common threads there is being able to see it. All of these things were recorded and put out for public consumption. And a lot of your work is as a documentary filmmaker. Like This is sort of what you do. You document things and you share these stories with other people. How powerful is that element of it right now? And how much, this is a two-part question, but how much more powerful will that be moving forward? I mean, it's difficult in a, in a few ways because on the one hand, yes, we are able to video and see a lot more of these tragic killings happening. On the other hand, you know, the street camera footage that um, that showed the, the beating of Rodney King existed. 
And that in itself wasn't enough. Um, you know, and, and obviously the racial makeup and the political makeup of the times contextualizing the beating of Rodney King was different. But I think we can't just say it's the the visual evidence on its own um, that's creating the difference. But, um, you know, I think the frequency and the, like, I, I saw the George Floyd video by accident, you know, and that was so devastating um, because I didn't want to see it at this point. I had seen so many, um, but the fact that I literally couldn't avoid it, um, that seems really different. The And, you know, that has to do with more people are able to make films and more people are able to get access to things. And, you know, myself as a documentary filmmaker, like I'm able to be a documentary filmmaker because cameras are becoming more affordable and I can pitch people because I can DM them, you know, which wasn't the case, you know, in some of the more, like I used to work at the discovery channel. It's, it's almost like you have to, you have to networking is more accessible, I guess is, is part of it. And so despite having, you know, I, I, I did go to film school. I do have connections in the film industry and things like that, but literally just being able to like pay to get a camera that makes it more accessible. Um, and it matters so much because representation matters so much. And it's not just who's in front of the camera, it's who's behind the camera, who's who, because all of us bring something to it. Like this idea that journalism is objective. I think it's being disproven more and more every day. Um, because the subjective lens that the person behind the camera brings is going to impact the story that gets told. The subjective lens of the editor is going to impact what stays in and what stays out of, um, you know, the story and, and then the direction of the story and the meaning of the story, et cetera. And so I think that, yeah, it, it matters so much that more and more people are having access to tools and training to um, share visual images. But man, I it's 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 even hard for me to to put documentary filmmaking and, and journalism next to these like brutal videos. We I just we shouldn't be watching people die, you know. Yeah, and and I think my you know, as I'm thinking back, um, I asked you a very clumsy question, <laughs> which I which I apologize for. Yeah, no problem. But you're, I mean, you're you're absolutely right about that. Um, but I, I think what I was what I was trying to get at is, you know, the ability to pretty much document anything now, and then the other part of it is is to share it so easily and have it be able to spread so quickly through social media, where then not can not only can people share it, they can talk about it and quickly form, you know, momentum behind it or start having a conversation, which can get out of hand um, as it as it has. But I mean, I think that's what's really unique about this day and age versus even something like, you know, Rodney King, because at the time you could watch it on TV and talk about it amongst your friends, but it wouldn't spread quite as quickly or quite as easily. Right. Yeah, completely agree. Completely agree. So you said you're feeling excitement and trepidation right now. We talked a bit about the excitement side of things. Where does the trepidation come from? Um, it's a few things, you know, I, the 2020 elections are coming up. 
it shouldn't be a surprise to anyone that I am not a supporter of the current president. Um, and so the, you know, knowing like how infrequently, um, how difficult it is to unseat incumbents, but it has happened in our lifetime, <laughs> which is exciting to remember. Um, you know, I just, I, I, I very much fear what four more years of, of this inaction and this, um, terrifying rhetoric would do, um, to particularly to communities of color and people from historically marginalized communities, BIPOC communities, um, anyone that's been, you know, uh, marginalized, um, cause it is very scary to have that rhetoric coming out of the, and to see such, um, inaction, you know, when, when, when we, we need proactive leadership. So I have trepidation there. And, you know, I went hiking with, um, one of my, my best friends who I ran track with in college moved up here and, um, his mom and dad were in town and I took them hiking on Monday and, um, his dad's a former Black Panther. And, you know, we were talking about how he's feeling right now. And part of it, he was like, it is so wonderful to see such a diverse group of people out there because it didn't used to be like that. And then his other thing was like, we'll see if they're still there in three months, you know? And I think that's the big question, you know, that a lot of us have is, okay, how long is this going to last? Like, yeah. So I, you know, the trepidation is kind of like that people are going to think this is like a trend or a hashtag and that there is an end in sight for the fight for racial justice and, and uh, equity. And like, there's not, you know, it's been going on since before I was born. And I don't think that there's a single law that can be passed. That's immediately going to say, Oh, everything's fixed now. You know, we have like systems to dismantle and it's a lifelong work. So I know that everyone has a different role in this work. I just fear that people won't make it a habit because they won't necessarily like either they'll be tired or they just won't understand that there is no like end of your contribution to creating a more just society. Um, I see that as an American responsibility, as a human responsibility. Um, But I've had to, you know, that's been the context in which I like live my life. So I don't get to tap out. Um, So I think there's definitely a fear that people will like tap out. Yeah. And as someone who's on the other side of it as a white male, it actually brings me trepidation as well. But I'm also optimistic because we have this momentum right now and it is an election year. And I think from a timing standpoint, or at least I hope from a timing standpoint, that if we can see real change later this year, that could also be another catalyst for people that's like, hey, you know what? This does make a difference. We've made this difference just in the last few months and there is a lot more work to do. And as you mentioned, it's going to be ongoing work, but hopefully that will inspire people to keep going beyond this election in November. Totally. And I think, you know, politically speaking, not to just be thinking about politics at a federal level. I I, mm-hmm. I really do think Thankfully, with the visibility of people like AOC and Ayanna Presley and Ilhan Omar, um, you know, like we are understanding 
who else we elect, <laughs> um, you know, and you, like someone like Mitch McConnell, that's, that's a, that is a state's job, you know, the, like we're deciding those on, on much smaller scales than the presidency. And so I know sometimes people are like, I don't want to vote. It's not going to make a difference. It might, but it, I, I do think it makes a difference on a federal level because we saw the small, small margin of votes that made the difference in 2016 or small number rather. But I think that it's that much more important um, with local and statewide elections. And I really hope that people are, are starting to see that more. Um, but it's, I was talking to, I forget, who yesterday, but we were like nerding out about how exciting it is when people begin to understand the political process and, and how a lot of us need like a re-up, you know, from what we learned in seventh, eighth and ninth grade about how these things work so that we can get excited again about local politics. And for me, moving from Brooklyn to Oregon, um, I don't know why, I, I guess it's the kind of people I was around and the nonprofits that I was working with, but I got um, you know, to meet my representatives, um, pr- like pretty quickly, you know, I've sat in the, I've sat in DC offices with three of my different representatives at this point. And I wasn't doing that when I was in New York. And it, it, for me, I get really excited about, um, just people understanding that they do have access. I think that's such a big takeaway. And to your point, I think it's also worth reiterating to people how if we want to see collective change in our country or on a much higher level, it starts with us as individuals and it starts in our own communities. If we can't make the changes there, it's not going to come from the other direction. It's not going to start from the top down. It starts from the bottom up. And I think we each have to take that responsibility individually amongst our social circles within our communities when it comes to our interactions day to day, also in voting and in elections and, you know, making the changes that we want to see in our communities. And if that happens in more places, that's how we're going to see greater change. Totally, totally. And, you know, like on, it, it never has it never has started at the top. You know, I, the Montgomery bus boycotts happened for over a year, like 380 or 382 days or something like that. Freedom rides lasted for seven months. So, you know, I think, and the massive amounts of people and who were walking to work, that's how important it was, you know? So I think like, I think, I don't know, I love, I just love knowing history also because it allows you to see the precedents that were set, um, but it also allows you to see like what it's going to take, I think, and and how dedicated people were. And I don't know, I just, I get, I know, I'm, I'm such a nerd about history, but I just feel like we can learn so much from actually being aware of what happened. Like, I think people think the Montgomery bus boycott like was a day or something. <laughs> it's like, no, over a year, over a year. I want to come back to your interest in history here in a bit. But one word that you've mentioned a couple times already in this conversation is representation. And I'd like for you first to define what that means. And then the second part of that question is, when did your interest in representation start? Totally, yeah. Um, you know, as a documentary filmmaker and a creative, I work in a, a lot of different areas. Um, 
for me, when people are like, what's your work about? I'm like representation. Um, because for me, representation means, as I said, like whose stories are told, how are they told, why are they told and by whom? Um, but to further explain it, I've usually used the, this example, I'll say, you know, um, the example of motherhood. So if you're watching TV and you only see three kinds of mothers, you know, it's like the Huxtables, it's Leave it to Beaver, you know, or one other thing, that is that is the messaging that you're getting around what motherhood looks like, what relationships with children are, what roles are, et cetera. But the more and more and more different shows that come out with different family dynamics, different family makeups, um, et cetera, the more messaging and the wider scale of messaging that we're getting that creates a greater spectrum of what motherhood can look like, not only for someone wanting to be a mother, but for a child with a relationship with a mother or, or a mother-like figure, you know, so by creating more images, we can affirm more people um, that they're okay, that what they're doing is valid, that there are other people like them, that they're not alone, that their family is, you know, X, Y, Z thing. Um, and so for me, for people of color, you know, in undergrad, I studied African-American studies and film studies with a specific focus on representation in media. And I looked um, specifically about what are the dominating and controlling images of Black women. And they were the Mammy, the Sapphire, the Jezebel. Um, there's a wonderful book by Tom Bogle um, that can like go into detail on that, as well as a film um, called Ethnic Notions, if people are like more curious about understanding those controlling stereotypical images. But, you know, what I what I was studying were, was what were the images that existed that controlled our understandings of Black women in America and how do they continue to exist now? What are the, I like to say, what are the technicolor modern versions of those same images that we're seeing in our films now? And how do they continue to reinforce stereotypical ideas about um, whether it's Black women or Latinx folks or Indigenous folks like what are we being told about how people exist in the world? Um, and how does that make it really difficult for us to interact with other people? You know, when I, I'm in the middle of um, a campaign called Just Add Water, um, it's a series of film screenings and we um, have uh, panels with the different people in it. And there's um, a film last week um, with a Shoshone Bannock couple that has this nonprofit called River New Way. And the film was called River Return. Um, but one of the things she said, uh, Jessica Matsaw, she was like, everyone thinks it's just feathers and leather, you know, and um, they don't people because partially because of our media, we don't have an idea of what like a contemporary Native American like life is like. We don't we don't understand that indigenous folks exist like doing the same things we do, you know, like and so we just have these images that exist of, of people living in a different world and it makes us. It makes something like the, you know, I don't even like saying the word redskins. It, it allows that mascot to continue because we don't believe in, in people. We believe in these stereotypes. Um, so, you know, when I, that's what I mean when I'm saying representation. It's like, who do we get to see? And therefore, like, who do we get to believe in? Um, not only just to, like, understand people better, but I think to understand for younger kids, especially, like, how they get to travel through the world and what their potentials could be. It's, it's a lot harder to imagine yourself being something if you've never seen anyone that looks like you doing it. Um, and we internalize these images um, of who gets to be a surfer and who doesn't, you know, or who gets to be a marathoner and who doesn't, um, or who gets to be, you know, whatever, a politician and who doesn't. 
Um, so yeah, that's what I mean when I say representation. Well, thank you. I appreciate you explaining that. When did your interest in representation really come to be? That's a hard question. I mean, I think, you know, I'm a, I'm biracial. My dad's black, my mom's white. And I think pretty early on through, I'm the youngest of three kids. And by the time I was born, my parents were like, all right, we need to give her books about biracial kids. Like my favorite book growing up was um, uh, called Black is Brown is Tan um, by Arnold Adolf. But you know, that was because my sister was having these racist um, experiences um, as a five-year-old, as a six-year-old. Um, so I think, you know, it was always a part of the conversation happening in my home. Um, and I've always been really interested in people. I was, you know, Spike Lee was my favorite director growing up. And when I went to high school, I, I transferred after my freshman year into a boarding school um, called Hotchkiss. And I don't know why my professors, like my teachers were so supportive of me, but one allowed me to like have my English class watch Bamboozled, um, you know, and kids were like leaving their room crying. They were like so upset about this, this film. And, um, you know, that was, I was still like 16 at the time. So when I got to college, I thought I was going to study archaeology or, or not. No, it wasn't. It was um, anthropology. I wanted to be an anthropology major. I'd never heard of sociology, um, which is probably what I would have been doing. But I, I took one film class. Um, it was like spring of my freshman year and I was pretty much hooked then. And I think that's probably when I started referring to that interest as representation. <laughs> This episode is brought to you by my friends at Tracksmith. Tracksmith is a Boston-based brand led by a group of runners who are committed to making classically stylish, cutting-edge running apparel. Their focus is real-world athletes, so the kind of runners who sneak a workout into their commute or plan vacations around races. Sound familiar? Does to me. Tracksmith designs all their products for the needs of serious amateurs, so they only use the best materials, from sweat-wicking, stink-free merino wool to a unique Italian nylon knit for their performance shorts. And all their garments feature thoughtful details that let you focus on your workout. As we head into summer, I love, love, love training in the Twilight Tank and the Reggie Half Tights. It's one of my favorite combinations, especially when I want to run fast. Both pieces are lightweight and super breathable, which helps me stay cool and allows me to move freely when the temperature starts rising. To welcome listeners to the podcast, Tracksmith is offering $15 off your first purchase of $75 or more. To learn more, visit tracksmith.com slash Mario and enter the code Mario15, that's Mario15, when you check out. That will save you $15 off your first Tracksmith purchase of $75 or more. My thanks to Tracksmith for their continued support of the Morning Shakeout podcast. Now let's get back to the show. This is something that you specialize in and you have for a long time at this point. So this question is really personal, but I also think it's applicable to some other people who are listening to this. But what can I and others in the quote-unquote running media do better from here on out as it relates to representation? Totally. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think to answer that question, it is about race and it also has to be more about more than race, too. So I guess I'll, I'll try to talk, speak to both quickly, um, because one of the things I think is so. <laughs> 
I actually did this film called The Movement with Camp Four um, a little while back and with Jaybird. And um, they kept being like, but running wasn't cool, right? As one of the questions, I was like, running has always been cool. Are you kidding me? And But they, they were talking about different kinds of running, right? They were talking about distance running and who was on the cover of Runner's World and what, what did they look like and did they seem cool? But when I grew up, I didn't even know any of those people existed. I only knew about Flojo. I only knew about sprinters. I only knew about track and field. I only cared about that. And I don't know if that was only because like, that's who looked like me, you know? So that's what I thought I could do. I could be on a track. Um, and um, I guess just like, so it's, it's, it's a question of a few things. One, what are you showing as valuable? And I think I think about it in the outdoor context as well as in a strictly running context. But are the only things that we see as valuable the longest, the you know the farthest, the fastest, the highest, the never before done? Um, are the only stories that we tell the stories of like epic adventure, or can we also tell stories about incredible people running in? cities you know like i like i love um seeing ricky gates do things because he's running around the streets of san francisco talking to people whatever and yeah it's epic but it's not epic in the like typical traditional sense you know yes ricky can also run across the country um and does that in amazing ways too but i think like our we also need to redefine what the adventure is and what the journey is in our in our sport and share stories that maybe don't fit, don't check the boxes of like the typical running story that we're used to telling. Um, And I do see people doing that. And then also like, yes, not only race and ethnicity and creed and language, you know, Um, because that's the other thing, like when's the last time you saw someone not speaking English in a running film? Um, You know, so I, I think about all these different kinds of, of representation. Um, you know, we have a few athletes that run the hijab and are still getting kicked out of races and stuff for, for, for that. Um, but I think like it's a responsibility to really be thinking of people in the running industry to really be thinking differently about um, whose stories they're showing and also like who are they employing or collaborating with to find these stories because we've been finding the same kind of stories over and over again because we've been looking for the same kinds of stories and we've been putting the same people on the job to find the stories. Um, And so I think like the diversification when it comes down to um, storytelling makes a difference. And it also, you know, it also um, will, if more people see themselves, they're more likely to show up, you know, whether it's at races or other things. So who are you inviting, um, to your races? Who are you, what are you supporting, you know, with the funding that your race can come up with, you know, people, will people pay a dollar more to support, um, uh, some of the activist organizations at the local, whether it's the Y or the local, uh, the closest reservation, like what can we really be doing with the platforms that we have? I'd love to extend this beyond just media representation. What can brands and events in the running and outdoor spaces do better when it comes to representation and diversity and equity and inclusion? I mean, you know, I'll say that my 
area of whatever expertise I have, and I'm certainly still learning so much about my own craft, um, is going to lie really within representation in media. Um, so I, I, you know, yes, I have ideas about what race directors can do and what brands can do, but they really need to do the work. You know, they need to come up with an equity plan. They need to hire people whose job it is to tell them this stuff and, and they need to figure it out, you know? And I think not only every individual, but every single organization should have an equity plan that they should be checking in on. Put it as the monthly meeting on your, you know, calendar, like, where is like, okay, checking in with the equity plan. How did we do? What else do we have to do? Have a company-wide or organizational-wide or nonprofit-wide um, community forum. What can we be doing? What did we do well? Where did we fail? Where, where can we do better? Um, so, you know, I think I'm getting better at not thinking that I have to answer all the questions that I don't know answers to because I think people have to do the work to learn. Um, and if someone just tells them what to do, they're not going to have the process of, of, of learning. But I think having an equity plan, um, hiring um, consultants and not having it be like, okay, we did that once a year. So check that box. We did the DEI training, but really like making it a part of the fabric of their organization doing the work to learn is so, so important regardless of who you are or what you're involved in. Totally. Yeah. And, you know, I, I tell people this, I have a little habit tracker that I try to remember to fill in at the end of each day. And it's everything from like went running, like, you know, did a circuit or like drank water or like drank alcohol or ate dumb sugar, you know, things that I aspire to do, things that I aspire not to do. Um, and one of them, one is like, did something bigger than myself. And another one is educated myself. And then like in parentheses, like articles, podcasts, et cetera. And, you know, that's not new. Um, I've always thought that it was so important for me to keep learning so I can be better, so I can like contribute, you know? And I think like, if I'm doing that and people are coming to me to ask me questions about diversity and equity and inclusion, and I'm still saying I have so much to learn then like all of us have so much to learn. And I think like making it a habit is um, just really important. And being open to learning together, as you just described. Totally. Yeah, totally. I'd love to go back to your childhood. I know that you ran track in college. You were a 400 meter runner at Yale. I know your dad was a track athlete. When do you remember running first coming into your life? (laughs) I think I remember running around like age three, um, three or four. I think it was something that, you know, if we went on walks as a family, um, my siblings and I are like one, two, three um, in terms of like the years being born. So my parents had three little toddlers. And if we did anything like ended up in a park, there would end up being a race. You know, I actually, apparently, I don't remember this, but I, I won a crawling race in my church when I was <laughs> two. And I still have this like stuffed rabbit that I got as my first ever trophy. Oh, I love um, that. <laughs> so it was, it was always a part of um, our lives. And then, you know, as I said, my, my sister's two years older than me, my brother's one year older than me. So when my sister um, was first getting ready to like officially join her first track team, I was going to the track with her and my dad um, while, you know, while they practiced and, and started training and, and learning about the 
distances and and everything like that. So I was I was learning about like what distances races were when I was like nine and ten. But I'm sure we were watching the Olympics and and everything like that. And I was reading books about Flojo. You know, I I was asthmatic and and Flojo was asthmatic. So it was a you know way of um, I think my parents encouraging me that I could still. Um, I'd still be able to run and and be great, you know, even with asthma. (laughs) Being the youngest of three, were you naturally competitive from an early age? (laughs) Is the sky blue? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah, I was extremely competitive. Um, Yeah, (laughs) that's just a definitive yes on that. Did it only apply to running or has it extended to other areas of your life as well? It was everything. I was competitive about everything. I mean, I I certainly calmed down. I think I would have like imploded at some point. And it's also, I think, partially why my parents were supportive of me going to boarding school. I didn't realize it at the time, but my sister and I were on the same track team, on the same relay, running the same events um, when I was in uh, ninth grade and she was in 11th grade and it was incredible. You know, we, we were on the same sprint medley at nationals when I was a freshman and, and, you know, it was so fun. Um, but it also was, we were so neck and neck that I think my, my parents thought it was really important for us to have our own things as well. So when I went to boarding school where I had a great coach and an awesome team, um, but not as much competition, you know, I definitely, um, really struggled to run at the same level. Um, and I remember years later, my dad just being like, that was probably the best thing that could have happened to, <laughs> you know, both of your track careers and your relationship with each other. Because um, I think, you know, the the story is, and we'll never know, but if I had ever beat my sister, we might not be as close as we are now. <laughs> I think that was a fear of my parents. What did you love about running at that point of your life when you were just getting into it? I was a tomboy. I was never like the coolest kid. (laughs) You know, my sister was always the most popular person in any school we went to. Um, I think I was always, you know, smart and nerdy and read a ton of books. And I think I just, it felt good to be good at something. that I wasn't going to get made fun of for when I was younger. So no one's going to be like, man, she's so whack. She's so fast. <laughs> like that, that wouldn't make sense. You know, um, I think that was maybe part of it. Um, but also we, you know, we moved around a lot when I was younger and um, when we lived in South Carolina, you know, I got I definitely got bullied um, for being biracial, um, but I we also lived in the middle of 300 acres and we lived down these dirt roads and it was just freedom, you know, just to be able to run. And when you're spending a lot of time by yourself playing outside, there's only so many things you're going to do. So seeing how fast you can run is definitely going to be <laughs> a part of that. But I think um, running's always felt like freedom to me. What role does running play in your life now? Ooh, you know, in the middle of a pandemic, I'm having a very difficult relationship with running. Um, I think just all of the conf- confines of uh, 
Where are you allowed to go? Where can't you go? What should you be doing? Are you wearing a mask? Are you not wearing a mask? Like all of that kind of made me feel very um, overwhelmed. Um, And so I haven't been running that much right now, but I actually just started heading back to the track. I was like, you know, let's go back to basics. So it's been really nice (laughs) being back at the track recently and just kind of feeling like I'm in my, my home place, um, a place that makes sense. Um, But I think, you know, running has definitely become, I do a lot more trail running. I've been learning and challenging myself to do a lot more distance running. Um, you know, last summer I worked on a, well, I produced and was the subject in a documentary film called This Land. Um, and I was running 20 miles a day, um, which coming from like a 400 meter background <laughs> is very different. Um, it's also interesting though, because it's it's still like on the spectrum of running for some people, it's like not that much. And for some people, it's like you were doing what? Um, but I think now, I don't know. It's where I think, I think, I think it's been, uh, yeah. Running's become like a way for me to think, a way for me to connect with my own thoughts. I'm very, I guess we all, you know, can be very like busy, 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 but I can be very, um, productivity oriented and it's kind of hard for me to pause. Um, and so it's nice to have something where like I'm not you can't contact me <laughs> like I'm not gonna be I'm unavailable I'm, yeah like I finally get to just like tune out and reconnect with how I'm feeling um about my day or what I'm doing in my life and the direction of my life I feel like I get to have those conversations a lot of things become clear when I think about them when I'm running I'd love to dig into the evolution of that relationship a little bit more because I mean, I mean, as a 400 meter runner, as a sprinter, even a good one in college, unless you go pro after school, which you didn't, most sprinters don't really continue with it. Um, there just aren't a lot of opportunities and you move on with other areas of your life. And you didn't stick with sprinting, but you stuck with running and you just described how it's evolved a little bit. What were the next steps in that evolution after college? Like, how are you thinking about the role that running played in your life at that time now that you were done with the track and figuring out what you wanted to do with yourself? Yeah. I mean, first of all, I was in denial that I was done with the track. <laughs> I had um, I had had a bunch of injuries in undergrad. And so when I graduated, I still had some eligibility and I um, started immediately. I went straight to film school at USC where you had no time to do anything. And I was like, maybe I can still run maybe I can like walk on so I was still at the track like putting myself through workouts and doing things and I never even got to the point where I was talking to the coach but I remember people used to be like oh what are you training for and I was like life (laughs) like I just I didn't know what else to do um and so for my first year out at um when I was in LA I was still still running at the track but I was also uh swimming a lot trying to um, I had six different stress fractures in my shins during college. Ooh. So yeah, fun times. <laughs> but so I was trying to figure out what I, what I could do. And actually around that time, I, re- I read Born to Run. Um, and it was mind blowing. Like it was just, it was crazy because I, I think I could never really understand why I'd had all these different stress fractures. And I, for me, I'm definitely a minimalist runner. And I had been wearing minimalist shoes before college 
like unintentionally, I just wanted shoes that looked cool. So I was wearing like whatever green and yellow, like Jamaica colored Pumas I could find, you know? <laughs> um, and then moving into like smarter, more supportive shoes in college, having a longer season, having the indoor, you know, banked track. Like I think just, I couldn't, my legs couldn't handle all of yeah. those things. Um, but I was looking for, uh, there's longer stories of how I ended up with a pair of those five finger Vibrams. Um, and, you know, uh, I was at first like super embarrassed about them, but I was trying to work on my, um, my legs. And so I would bike to, you know, I'm, I dropped out of a uh, film school, moved back to New York, um, kind of didn't know what on earth I was doing with my life. I, I didn't tell a lot of people I had moved back. I was super embarrassed about leaving film school and I moved um, pretty close to Prospect Park and I just started running to the park um, or biking to the park and running. And then I got these um, shoes and I would bike to the park, put them on, run like, you know, you're supposed to build up. So like do like a mile um, and then run barefoot. And I always have loved running barefoot. So I, I would do a lot of that work. And then my legs started feeling better and you know, a mile became three miles and three miles became five miles and five miles became six miles. And I think I, I hit my first like runner's high after six miles. And I was like, whoa, what is this? You know? And I think like I was so, everything felt unclear except for that. You know, I, I, I had left film school. I was thinking about reapplying and transferring into different master's programs. I was like working as a barista. I, you know, you know, felt that for the first time in my life, people weren't proud of me. Um, nobody got to brag about what I was doing. And part of me was really like stoked about that. You know, I was just like, yeah, stick it. You know, I just, I had been in such this like high pressured environment between right. Hotchkiss and Yale. And, you know, even before that, being the kid that got the straight A's, et cetera, that like to feel like people didn't get to use those accolades now. They just had to actually talk about me and what I was doing. Um, it felt really good, but it was also like really hard. And I think um, learning how to, to run differently was a huge part of my um, coping process for feeling like I was in control of something, um, which is how I started um, road running. And um, one of my classmates, <clears throat> Gabby Kelly from Yale had been running with Track Mafia in London and told me about Black Roses. And I ran with them for uh, about three years and then really got into like, oh, not only am I running in the park, but I'm going to practice and I'm entering races. And I'm, you know, did my first like ha two half marathons um, that way and did my first trail running actually with the squad too. Um, and so it, it evolved um, that way. And then <laughs> actually, I, so I, I, you know, after running with Rose in New York, I I got cast in this YouTube series <laughs> um, called Directors of Toughness with Columbia Sportswear. I remember um, that. Yeah. So that was what moved me out to New York. And I think I saw you that I was I was doing that. So I'd moved out to Portland, which was only supposed to be for nine months. And I was back in Boston and you were doing a live recording from the marathon, like in 20 mm -hmm. was it 2017 or 2018? Um, both, I was there both years. I think that might have been 2018, the real wet. Oh yes. That, oh gosh, yeah. But that that had um, being out in Portland and doing that with direction of toughness. They had 
signed me up for a surprise uh, stage race, 100K stage race. Uh, so that was my first experience with the running 20 miles a day thing. So it was actually assigned to me as part of my job. Um, but the experience of doing it, I, I pretty much fell in love with like mountain running. That was my first time doing mountain running. I was I was running in the Andes and it was just incredible. I mean, it seems silly to even ask you this question, but what was it about being in the mountains and being on the trails that felt so incredible to you? You know, actually, I got injured. So I, um, you know, I had never run distances like that before. And I um, I overtrained and I went into the race hobbling. Um, and day one, um, after I finished, I mean, I'd, I'd been crying on the trail, like, and, you know, I, um, <laughs> I ended up, spin- it, it was, anyway, when I finished day one, I was like in tears. I called my dad and I called Knox and, and, you know, I was like, I didn't know if I was going to keep going. And two things happened. One, my dad was like, you guys used to come in second place and third place and come home complaining you have to remember all the people on your team who never made the relay, who never got, you know, any, any medals. And they were up there around the track during the four by four screaming for you. Like it was their race. He was like, you need to figure out what made them come out every day to practice. I love that. Yeah. And you know, and I was like, God, cause of what I had said to him on the phone, I was like, nobody even knows I'm a runner. That's, I was so upset about that part. And it was a huge, like humbling experience to be like, who cares if people know you're a quote unquote runner? And also you are a runner because you're out there running, you know, but what is it really about? Is it about that finish line number, you know, or is it about running? Um, so that was one thing. And then there was a guy who was two tents down from me because the way the stage race was work, you'd, um, pack up all your stuff in the morning and give your bag to someone. Um, and then you'd run 20 miles. Then when you got there, your bag was there with a tent that was assigned to you and you'd like eat and sleep and put your legs up and walk into a lake, whatever. And the next morning, same thing, you'd pack up and you'd come drop your bag off and then you'd start running. And someone about two tents down, he heard me crying. Um, and we were in Argentina and he was like, um, you know, asked me if I was okay. And, um, Later on, and um, he was like, I can't disfrutarla. Um, and it means like, you have to enjoy it. Um, and, you know, I just remember he was injured. That's what it was. He was injured too. And he was like, I'm out here on the trails, like charlando, like hanging out with everyone, like making people feel good, making people laugh. It doesn't matter. And I just remember being like, how can I be like that tomorrow? Tomorrow I'm going to enjoy it. Hey, we've got one more sponsor to thank for this episode. It's my friends at Whoop. I'm super excited about what this company is doing for athletes. Whoop is a fitness wearable. It's just a band that you wear around your wrist that provides personalized insights on the performance of your sleep, how recovered your body is, and how much stress you put on your body throughout the day from your workouts and the normal stressors of life. Here's what's great about Whoop from my experience. Every day when you wake up, you get a recovery score based on your HRV, resting heart rate, and sleep performance that can be used as an indicator to how to approach your day and your training. If you get a green recovery, that's a sign that you have a more intensive workout, but if it's red, that's a signal that you might want to take a rest day or have an active recovery day. 
The Whoop app even has built-in features like the Strain Coach, which actually gives you target exertion goals based on the level of intensity your body is signaling that it can handle. If you're not sure what type of training your body is ready for, this is an awesome feature to keep you from overdoing it. And based on how strenuous your day is, the app has a built-in sleep coach, which actually lets you know how much sleep you should be getting so that you can wake up and be recovered based on your performance goals, which you can set for yourself. For everyone listening to this, Whoop is offering 15% off with the code Mario. That's my name when you check out. Go to Whoop, that's W-H-O-O-P dot com, and enter Mario, that's M-A-R-I-O, at checkout and save 15%. Sleep better, recover faster, and train smarter with Whoop. My thanks to Whoop for supporting the Morning Shakeout podcast. Now let's get back to the show. So what did you do? How did you become more like that? Um, or did you? I did. I had a great time. I was like taking selfies with people. Some people I still am in touch with on Facebook. They're like, stay with us when you come back to Argentina. There was another guy that was injured. Um, and he was, so some of the stage races you do as a, as, a, as partners. Um, and so he was supposed to be in a partnership and they were like really high ranked and he had gotten injured. So his partner and him were running separately and he was hobbling and we had seen each other on the first day, like both with our knees wrapped similarly. Um, and so the second day, I think we did like 10 or 15 miles together, like just him, him leading for a little bit and me leading for a little bit and, you know, just like whatever, making fun of ourselves. We got lost. We got time added to us because it was really hot and people had gotten, they, they like shortened the race, but added penalties. It was something like crazy. The whole thing just felt like insane. Um, and then somehow on day three, I could run, I could run like four or five miles in. I, I was suddenly able to like bear, do like weight bearing on my right knee. And I was like hopping over things and I was ecstatic. And so, I mean, I finished the last day in like twice the pace I had done every other day. And I actually waited and went back to the finish line and 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 saw the people I'd been running with the other days and hugged them and met their kids. And it just, it felt so big. It felt so much more important to me. Um, it was one of the best races I've ever had, even though it was one of the slowest. <laughs> did the community feel different to you? Yeah, it did. It did. I think, you know, maybe... <sighs> It might have been me, Mario. Like, I really don't know. I think, like, I never stuck around. I mean, I, I definitely waited for all of my teammates to finish, but I had this incredible, like, luxury of always having been fast. I didn't know what it felt like to not be at least competitive, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and I think that experience was really humbling um, and, like, reminded me of, all the other lessons there are to learn beyond like racing yourself and racing the clock. Um, so I do think the community was different, but I also think that like I was different um, somehow. Yeah, that really resonates with me because I really didn't get into trail running until I moved to the Bay Area in 2014. We have incredible trails in a community here. And like you, I was always really competitive. Like running was this competitive outlet for me. And I've raced ultras and stuff, but I noticed pretty early on that it had a different vibe to it and the community was a bit different. It wasn't about that. Um, yeah. It could be about that if you wanted it to be. Um, but at its core, it wasn't about that. And it felt 
I don't want to say relaxed is is the right word, but that's one of the adjectives that I would use. Um, but it 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 did something for me. Like it re, it kind of reignited my my love for running, and it changed my relationship with it for the better. And I just wish more people could experience that. Um, I think there there are a lot of hesitations for folks. Um, whether it's getting into trails and ultras and, and, and that whole side of things. But the community itself is just so welcoming. And I really do think if you come from a background like we do, where we ran in college, it can really just open your eyes to what more running can be. Oh, I mean, I absolutely agree. And I almost feel like I, I sold the community short in my last answer because the community is incredible. And I think there's just like this understanding that like the what you're doing is hard enough. So let's just be chill. Like, let's not make it any harder, you know? And I was thinking um, about Patty O'Leary, who I'm, I think you know too from yeah, I know Patty running well. the day. But I was running with Patty a couple of years ago and I was still, you know, as a road runner, like stopping my watch when things were happening. And I remember Patty being like, the poop counts. He was like running at the end of the trail to this, um, to this porta potty. And he's just like, the poop counts with his Irish accent. And I just, I think about that all the time because it was like, he was, it's just like, it didn't matter. He's like, clock everything, like take the hours on everything. Like the poop counts. And I just, I think about that all the time. <laughs> it's it's funny that you mentioned Patty because he is a good friend of mine and former podcast guest for anyone listening to this. If you want to hear us ramble on for like two hours, I can't remember what episode it is, but just look for Patty O'Leary. But my first time meeting him was on a trail run and he was just getting into the sport. And like you, I was that guy who would stop his watch at... <laughs> every time we would come to an intersection or someone used the bathroom or whatever. And I remember just running with this guy who had kind of just gotten into it, had a lacrosse background. He had these long lacrosse shorts on, <laughs> these like beat up Merrill shoes, I think, on his feet and some t-shirt. And he's like hanging with all the guys. And I'm like, who, like, who is, who is this guy? And like, but he was just like, he just loved it. Um, and he was just enjoying himself. And like, none of that stuff mattered to him. And I was like, huh, that, that's a pretty refreshing perspective. Totally. Yeah. And, you know, and when I was first getting into it, I, I, I got to meet, um, Joelle Vaught and Amy Sproston. And, and mm -hmm. since I've gotten to meet like Rory Bosio and just like, they're so chill. Like, I, you know, I think I was so like intimidated, you know, and I, I thought like, oh, they're not going to want to run with me or I'm going to have to like keep up. And, and it's just, it's not, it's not, that way. Like, I, I don't know. I mean, I think you can do a number on yourself and any, anything that you're doing and feel this like need to perform in all of these different ways. And that's in running and not in running. But I, I do think that something about the community, they're just so excited that you want to be a part of it. You know, <laughs> like I think when I meet other trail runners, like I just, you know, whether it's Olivia O'Neill or Eddie Thompson or Sarah Forney, like some of the, some of the, I just met Sarah and we had all these friends in common through trail. And it was like, oh, we're, we're just friends now, you know, cause you know, trail and right, this is it. Like, we're just friends. There's just this like understanding, um, which I really appreciate. Along these lines, one thing I'd love to get your perspective on is something that I've been putting more of my time and energy into recently. And that's trying to get more people from, marginalized communities, folks who live in more urban environments out into nature so that they can experience hopefully trail running or just the outdoors in general. And 
certainly in the trail and ultra running space, like we just don't see a lot of people of color in general in those communities. We certainly don't see a lot of women of color out on the trails. How can we change that? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's interesting. My first trail running experience, I was running on trails in areas where I had hiked before. I just I had just never thought to run there. Um, so I think it, it, it is a question of like introductions and invitations. Um, and then knowing, you know, like it doesn't, everyone's not gonna, it's not gonna look the same way. Like my thing is like, you need to, to do it and then bring out examples that look like, you know, so I think about everything. A lot of times I work at a a youth focused nonprofit. My last nonprofit was youth focused. I was a camp counselor, like for many, many years. Um, and so a lot of times like, what are the, um, introductions that we're making for younger people? Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, when we're doing like, whether it's inviting, a how do I say this? Like, I think a lot of times people want to do stuff with, um, like kids from BIPOC communities. Um, and they'll be like, we're going to do a park cleanup. (laughs) It's like, okay, yes. But also, is that fun? <laughs> like, you know, is, if the first experience that you have is a, is like not fun or is work related or whatever, like, are you really going to go back and keep doing it? I, I already had to be a runner before I fell in love with trail running. Like it, my my introduction was very like little by little. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's it's interesting. I think about um, Yassine Boone here in Portland um, from Wyatt's Wolfpack and he does like cross country camps and things with younger kids. And um, yeah, I I don't really know. I don't really know the answer, but I do know that being invited feels really good. And I think a lot about the power of an invitation or an introduction. And maybe it is like seeing if, uh, you know, a a local high school or or whatever is going to help with handing out medals at the end of a a race or something like that. So they just get to see people doing something and, and, and get inspired by that. I think those little introductions, it might not necessarily be like, Hey, come do a 5k on trails with me. Cause some people that's going to still be a really intimidating thing for them. Yeah. I, I think you're, you're right about that. And I just had you seen on the podcast, it's actually the current episode as we're speaking. And he did talk about how one thing he is really passionate about is reaching the youth and starting it there and giving them the opportunity to get to the outdoors. And you said invitation, he said opportunity. I think that's what it is. It's like, just, just invite people to partake in an opportunity. And if you do it consistently enough, it may stick. Um, And I think that's how something like that is going to grow. Cool. Yeah. I hadn't seen the Yasin episode. So that's, that's exciting. Um, yeah, Yasin coached me, um, for the monuments project, um, last year. And really, if I keep doing anything, I'm going to be going back to Yasin like, Hey, it's me again, starting from zero again. (laughs) I think as my coach, he has a a difficult job because I like really take time off in between. You've mentioned the Monument Project, and it is your latest film. It's a documentary called This Land. And you ran, I think it was 150 miles through parts of three U.S. monuments. And this was like kind of like in the thick of all the controversy around public lands. What was the impetus behind 
that project? Yeah, I mean, it was really to understand what the controversy of public lands was. Like we, you know, I, I was at the time trying to decide if I was going to stay in Portland or go back to New York. Um, I was running a lot with a, a crew of trail runners here in Portland, including um, Addie Thompson, who had kind of like pulled me into her crew. And Addie had a background in documentary and sustainability and marketing as well. And um, I was working at a conservation focused nonprofit <clears throat> at the time. And so we were always having these conversations about public lands. And so when it was announced that Zinke was doing this review of the monuments, I think our initial reaction was like, what is that going to mean? Um, and then, you know, I would be talking to friends back in New York and I was like, yeah, and this thing's happened with the monuments. And they were like, what? Um, and so I realized like people really didn't know. I was, mm -hmm. I was in this bubble where it seemed like it was like the biggest headline, but so many people weren't aware of it. And if these are public lands that require public comments, then I wanted to figure out how I could bring that news to my community as well. Um, and Addie, you know, was very much also thinking about like representation from like, what does it mean for us women to be out here doing it? And where are these places? And, you know, so when we originally, um, the whole film was going to be all women running and we were, uh, Addie and I were going to do the whole thing together. And then she got into grad school and, you know, over the course of trying to find funding, et cetera, a few different things changed. Um, but it was, it was wonderful in that it allowed me to bring more people in to meet me and, and run with me in different places and kind of share like how they were using running, um, in their lives. And so that included, um, Jen Castillo and, um, Jose Gonzalez and Dustin Martin. And so they all came out and talked to me about how they were, you know, running their communities and they're all good friends. So it just felt good to have friends to talk and, and run with. Yeah. Well, I really enjoyed the film. I'll link to it in the show notes and I'd encourage anyone listening to this to watch it because it really opened my eyes to a lot of things. And one of the things that you said in the film that really stuck with me is you wanted to redefine conservationist. And I'd love to just understand a little bit more what you meant by that. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I think, and thank you. I, I thank you. I'm glad you um, enjoyed it. And, and, and thanks for supporting the film. Um, I think, you know, I'd heard about conservation here and there growing up or throughout my life. And it always seemed really distant. And then I was working at discovery and, um, I got to get really steeped in some of the different environmental issues that were facing us and trying to think about how we can create films around them. And I think what I learned was that people, people were seeing, I think the reality was I wanted people to be a part of the conversation and people were a part of the conversation, most importantly, like, and some of the, you know, I'd be like the first eyes on a lot of things that got sent in that were never going to make it to the network either because they were, there were language barriers or the you know quality of the footage wasn't quite there. The story wasn't quite there. Um, but I was seeing all these incredible stories coming out of like indigenous communities that were standing up for their homelands and just like all of these amazing people centered stories that, you know, weren't going to make it to a network in that, in the same way. But I was like, whoa. And it also reminded me that like people of color are so often on the front lines of environmental disasters. And, it, you know, I was thinking about Katrina and I was thinking about 
you know, air pollution. There's an incredible film that recently came out called Mossville that like I bawled the entire time. And it's like one of the most important films I've seen recently. But I just was like, we're on the front lines, but we're not involved in these conversations because the conversations historically, we weren't invited to be a part of them. We were very excluded from them, you know, and I knew that I had um, fact checked this book called Spectacle when I was in grad school written by Pamela Newkirk um, that talks about uh, this um, person named Oda Benga, who was pygmy, who had been put in the New York, in the Bronx Zoo, um, and it goes into, and what it is, is through the story of understanding how that came to happen, you learn about all these like quote unquote fathers of conservation and, and how a lot of them were eugenicists and like all this stuff that was like mind blowing to me at the time. And still is when I think about it, that like, you know, eugenics and conservation have a very closely related, uh, history, which is really scary. And, 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 you know, so like, when those were the folks that were creating the parks, et cetera, it's no surprise that we were removing Native peoples from their lands, you know, in order to make way for our great idea, you know, America's best idea. But I think in order to be a part of conservation and reclaim it, I was like, I need to redefine this. So for me, whenever I say conservation, I mean clean air, clean water, and access to green spaces. And I think everyone deserves that. And I think um, if we see conservation as a, a question of community health, um, then we're then we're going to be doing all the things that not only protect plants and animals, but also protect people. We don't have a ton more time for this conversation, but I do want to take a quick pivot before we wrap up and get into the roots of your creativity. When did your interest in storytelling start? Oh, huh. I don't, I don't know if anyone's ever asked me that. I think, um, like actual storytelling, huh? You know, I think partially being at summer camp, my mom, um, my mom's an incredible storyteller in like the very, like official sense, you know, it's not that she's like telling, like she is telling great stories at dinner, but it's not that she's like telling great stories at dinner, but it's like when she's reading a book when we were little, it was like, she's embodying all the characters and doing all the voices and all that stuff. And um, so I loved books always, always loved books. And I don't, I don't know when I, no, I do. You know, I think it was working at these summer camps. Um, we did a lot of storytelling and pageants and, our, um, you know, our kids, um, we worked with um, from six to ages six to 12. Um, and I just saw how much media was impacting their lives. Um, you know, I was obsessed with music videos too when I was younger. Like, that's what I wanted to do first. I wanted to make music videos. I was like, I'm going to be a music video director. Um, but I think that seeing how much media impact their lives and then, and then when I, you know, went to Hotchkiss and went to college and I was getting to read all of these things from these like incredible black women writers specifically that I felt like was impacting my like very identity and my sense of self. And I was like, but man, like my kids aren't getting that, you know, my, my six and seven year olds are watching music videos, but they're not, they're not getting like Audre Lorde's voice or Elizabeth Alexander's voice or stories, you know, they're not getting like the children's version of um, Zora Neale Hurston, you know, that stuff's not getting to them. And, 
And so I was like, if I, I didn't want that knowledge to only exist in an ivory tower, I wanted it to be more common. Um, and so I think that's really what pushed me in that direction. But I definitely think my mom's, um, I don't know, unapologetic's not the right word, but like carefree, like he was not embarrassed. I mean, even watching my mom, my parents are both educators and watching my mom like talk to other kids and we sang a lot of camp songs and my mom was always doing all the motions all the way. And I mean, no shame, shameless. That's the word, not unapologetic, <laughs> shameless. My mom was a shameless uh, storyteller and she acted everything out. And I think just like seeing that and seeing people be fascinated and excited and even like, could just like appalled even just be like, oh my gosh, what is Miss Hope doing? You know, but I was always like, oh my gosh. But I think just growing up seeing storytelling, yeah. Does your love of language and words come from her as well? I would say yes. And also from my dad. My dad is um, a ceramics teacher, um, but he was doing like his uh, ceramics professor and he was doing his um, PhD when I was younger, but he also was a pastor for different periods of time. And so I grew up like, first of all, if I wanted to know what a word meant, I was had to go look it up. Um, and so I was like, go get the dictionary. It was like very common. (laughs) So it's so annoyed. I was like, you could just tell me. Um, but you know, even to like breaking down the Hebrew words in the Bible and what they meant. Um, and, uh, you know, we were definitely always encouraged, like, what is the etymology of that? And so I, I took Latin for a couple of years. And then when I switched to Spanish, I, I think I got even more excited about language and the origins of words um there and there was probably like back to that being a competitive little kid like being able to like say words other people didn't know was probably like part of my fuel because I (laughs) I'm very glad I don't have that amount of um competitive nature I think as the youngest kid though you're always like trying to keep up yeah like show something like know something that someone else doesn't know so I think it comes from there Last question to round out this conversation. Where do you take your work from here? Gosh, if I knew that, I I feel like that's been a big question for me during the um, pandemic too. I mean, I'm, 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 I'm increasingly interested in policy and I'm increasingly interested in how environmental policy can really um, reflect the needs of communities, particularly the communities that are most at risk. And so I'm curious about how indigenous and Afrocentric approaches to community can be reflected in the way that we make policy. Um, so I don't know. I, I, I've been wondering about like trying to do that in a more formal setting. Um, and, uh, you know, through filmmaking. Um, so I think. I'm definitely encouraged also by everything that is happening in the world because it it feels like people are now understanding how much they need um, stories uh, that are hitting, getting into the messy, difficult conversations about identity and and politics and our relationships with each other. Um, So hopefully more film and... um, more more nerd stuff <laughs> more lobbying more i'm working with protect our winters now and 
hoping to be able to get some more tools to do more um, political engagement too. So I'm excited about that. Well, I'm glad to hear it. I encourage you to keep going. I'm a big fan of your work, whether it's posts that you put up on Instagram, a film that you've released, your advocacy. Thank you for all of it. And thank you for coming on the Morning Shakeout podcast. Thank you. It's, it's so nice to get to talk in this way. Thank you. another episode in the books. Thank you so much for listening in. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend about it or throw up a post on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook and encourage your followers to subscribe to the show. You can also leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you're listening to this on, which only takes a minute and it really means a lot to me. A big thank you to both Tracksmith and Whoop for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Tracksmith is a Boston-based running brand led by a group of dedicated runners who are committed to building superlative quality, classically stylish, and cutting-edge running apparel for real-world athletes. I train regularly in their Twilight Tank and Reggie Half Tights, staples of their spring collection, which is now available online. And if you're looking for inspiration to stay motivated and get out the door these days, be sure to check out their journal on tracksmith.com and their Instagram feed at tracksmithrunning, where they've been sharing and creating content from around the running world. To learn more, visit tracksmith.com slash Mario and use the code Mario15, that's Mario15, when you check out and save 15 bucks off your first purchase of $75 or more. Whoop is a fitness wearable you wear on your wrist that provides personalized insights on the performance of your sleep, how recovered your body is, and how much stress you put on your body throughout the day from your workouts and the normal stressors of life. It has built-in features like a strain coach and a sleep coach that help you target optimal exertion levels and tell you how much sleep you should be getting based on the intensity of your training and the signals that your body is giving you. Whoop is offering 15% off with the code Mario, that's my name, when you check out. So go to Whoop, that's W whoop.com and enter the code Mario, M-A-R-I-O when you check out and save 15%. Sleep better, recover faster, and train smarter with Whoop. I'd also like to give a shout out to my rock star team here at the Morning Shakeout. John Summerford, who handles the production and makes this show sound as good as it does week in and week out. Jeff Stern for social media and editorial assistance. And Chris Douglas for managing sponsorship sales. I couldn't do what I do without their help. Last thing, if you're digging the podcast, I encourage you to sign up for my newsletter. It's also called The Morning Shakeout at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. And you'll get my weekly take on what's happening in the world of running, along with a collection of things that I've been thinking about, reading, and listening to that you might enjoy getting in your inbox every Tuesday morning. Okay, that's it. I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of The Morning Shakeout Podcast. <laughs>